It's chapter 1, verses 21 through 28, and if you want to follow along in your pew Bibles, it's at page 27 of the New Testament section. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. Just then there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, throwing him into convulsions and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. We celebrate the written word of Scripture. We celebrate the living word, Christ among us. I went to high school with a kid everybody knew as Ted, but his real name was George. I don't know why his nickname was Ted, but he hated to be called George. No one ever called him George, except every year on the first day of class when a teacher who didn't know him yet called Roll. Except one teacher that I'll never forget. Instead of calling roll from the sheet of paper that the office had provided, this teacher went down the rows of desks and asked each of us to say our names. For the first time, Ted was just Ted. The teacher also learned that E-V-A was pronounced Ava and that you didn't pronounce the G in Montanese. It was the first thing this teacher did. It told us a lot about him right off the bat. He cared enough to ask us what we wanted to be called and how to say our names. First things matter. In this morning's passage in Mark's Gospel, the very first thing Jesus does is pick a fight with an unclean spirit. And it tells us a lot about him right off the bat. It happens on the Sabbath, the day of worship and rest in the synagogue. Jesus, a young rabbi, teaches. That's not so unusual. But the people are unusually interested in what he says. In fact, Mark says they were astounded because he taught with authority. What does with authority mean? Was he confident? Was he persuasive or charismatic, or did he say what people wanted to hear, or what? We don't know for sure. But I bet that there was something authentic in him that people could see. I bet they could tell that he honest-to-goodness believed that the kingdom of God was at hand. He could feel it and taste it and see it, and he wanted others to as well. But no sooner did they get a whiff of his authority when something really unusual happens. There's a disturbance right there in the synagogue. A man is suffering, not suffering in general, but from possession by an unclean spirit. Let's spend a minute with 
unclean spirit because we don't always know exactly how to process it in modern terms. Some people guess that the man was mentally ill, but we don't really know, and it isn't fair to assume that's what it is. It's probably more fruitful to imagine the impact of whatever this condition was on the life of the man. He was probably a danger to himself and to others. He's probably ostracized, excluded from social interactions with normal people. His family is probably ashamed and afraid. And the first thing Jesus does is to confront that unclean spirit, freeing this man of its hold and restoring the man to himself, his loved ones, and his community. In Mark, it's the very first major event in Jesus' ministry. Mark could have started his story about Jesus differently. Matthew, Luke, and John do, after all. This tells us what Mark thinks is important, and even offers a pretty strong clue to what he believes is the heart of Jesus' ministry and mission. Mark starts with a confrontation. Jesus stands up to and opposes this unclean spirit, this whatever it is that robs the man, his family, and his community of life, right there in the synagogue. Notice that Jesus doesn't kick him out of the synagogue. He doesn't wait until the Sabbath is over, tell him to leave. He sees the unclean spirit for what it is, a challenge to God's promise and intention of health and life for all God's children. And then he takes it on. Jesus has just been preaching and teaching that the kingdom of God is at hand. And in Mark's gospel, Jesus is about to show us what that means. First and foremost, it means that God and Jesus will oppose anything that stands against God's desire that all God's children enjoy health and life. God in Jesus will oppose anything that stands against God's desire that all God's children enjoy health and life joy, meaning, and purpose, what Jesus calls abundant life. What does this mean for us? Maybe for starters, it means that our God is a God of the broken, and our church is a fellowship of the needy. David Lowe's writes that, according to Mark, this is pretty much all it takes to be a member of Jesus' disciples then and now. Recognition of our deep need and trust that Jesus has come to meet it, to confront it, to take it on, and even to pick a fight with it. So maybe one invitation this morning might be to think of those places of brokenness or disappointment or fear in our lives and to remember that God does not stay away from us because of these challenges, but rather draws nearest to us precisely in these moments. But also, we're invited to look outward and see the brokenness in someone in our family or among our friends or at work or in the neighborhood or in the nation or the culture or the world and wonder if God might be choosing to work through us to draw that person 
those people to new life. What are we called to confront? How are we called to confront it? As Los writes, God is still at work casting out the unclean spirits of the world, and God is using and God is using us to continue our Lord's work. This is always a question of calling. Each of us has different opportunities, passions, and motivations, and gifts for confronting the brokenness we see in us and around us. Some people will march in the Women's March. Others will speak up when they hear a racist stereotype or when they witness sexual harassment. Others will run for office. Still, others will confront a loved one about an addiction. The fact that this first confrontation took place in the synagogue, in the midst of the worshiping community, is a curious twist on this story. The man suffering from being possessed wasn't out in the wilderness or at the edge of town or hidden in the back bedroom. He's at the synagogue. For our purposes, let's just call it church. Let's call it Sunday. And right there on the day it's not supposed to happen, in the place it's not supposed to happen, an unclean spirit possesses the man. I love the Tissot painting on the cover of your bulletins because it's so obvious that right there in the synagogue, this episode throws the worshiping community into utter chaos. Bad stuff happens in the synagogue. Bad stuff happens in churches to people who are part of the church and even sometimes, most sadly, because of the church. We know this is so, and part of our calling is confronting that. A few years ago, North Carolina pastor John Pavlovitz wrote a blog for the Huffington Post that put him on the map, so to speak. The blog was called, If I Have Gay Children, Four Promises from a Christian Pastor Parent. It was picked up by CNN and major newspapers. In a Chicago Tribune interview, Pavlovitz told a reporter that in one simple post, he'd reached more people than he had in 18 years of ministry, and he could see a lot of healing happening because of it. He described the blog as a preemptive love letter to his two young kids in the event that he finds out that they are LGBTQ one day. After two decades of ministry to students, seeing firsthand the incredible damage being done to so many young gay people and their families in the name of God, he felt he needed to speak directly to the faith community. His hope was that by framing the conversation around the common and deeply personal experience of love of family, some might approach it from a different heart place than they had before. Here are some excerpts from the blog. If I have gay children, you'll know it. My children won't be our family's best kept secret. Childhood is difficult enough. I'm not going to put mine through any more unnecessary comfort just to make Thanksgiving dinner a little easier for a third cousin with misplaced anger issues. If I have gay children, I'll pray for them. I won't pray for them to be made normal. 
I've lived long enough to know that if my children are gay, that is their normal. I won't pray that God will heal or change or fix them. I will pray for God to protect them from the ignorance and hatred and violence that the world will throw at them simply because of who they are. If I have gay children, I'll love them. I don't mean some token, distant, tolerant love that stays at a safe arm's length. It will be an extravagant, open-hearted, unapologetic, lavish, embarrassing them in the school cafeteria kind of love. I won't love them despite their sexuality, and I won't love them because of it. I will love them simply because they're sweet and funny and caring and smart and kind and stubborn and flawed and original and beautiful and mine. Pavlovitz was inundated with responses to the blog. There was, as you might expect, vile profanity and utter contempt from people who claimed to speak in the name of Jesus. There were affirmations as well, but what moved Pavlovitz most were the responses from what he called the trenches. Sometimes he writes, you read words and they aren't words, they are more like wounds. These weren't statistics, they weren't numbers, they weren't causes, they weren't culture war talking points, they were brothers, daughters, uncles, mothers, best friends, bosses, co-workers, and next-door neighbors. They were flesh and blood, God-breathed lives, riddled with desperate, unanswered prayers to be changed, with crippling addictions and self-harm sought as refuge, with fractured, severed relationships with treasured loved ones, unable or unwilling to receive them as they are. The experience moved Pavlovitz, in fact it called Pavlovitz, to take up a ministry committed to a more healing, more inclusive church. He writes, You may need to speak first so that others who may not have the strength or the opportunity to speak can find their voices. You and I have no idea of the goodness out there until we seek and speak our truest truth. Once we do, God lets you see things you'd never see any other way. Not every individual ends up, as did Pavlovitz, called to a full-time ministry of confrontation. Our opportunities, our passions, our nudges from God are all different. But the church, the church itself, as the body of Christ, may need to speak first. We in the church may need to confront the exclusion, the hurt, and the larger church's ongoing obsession with what's clean or unclean, so that others who may not have the strength or opportunity to speak can find their voices, even at the risk of creating the scene on your bulletin covers. That is what Jesus did in this morning's passage, the very first thing, right there in the synagogue, right there in church. You and I have no idea of the goodness out there until we seek and speak 
our truest truth. Once we do, God lets you see things you'd never see any other way. May it be so for you, and for me, and for our congregation. Amen.